from McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that wants to go hug its kids. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Parenting Gone Wrong. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So parenting gone wrong. Clearly, we're talking about your parents. Mm, uh, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't get what... personal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. What are we talking about today? Well, this started out being more tightly focused on the concept of kidnapping in animals, but then it sort of expanded a little bit into related behaviors, behaviors related to kidnapping. So it'll still kind of be about kidnapping, but it'll also be some kidnapping adjacent kinds of behaviors that we see in animals. And my animal behavior class, by the time we get to the end of the semester, we get into a reproduction unit and then that sort of naturally leads into a parent offspring interactions kind of unit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is interesting to talk about is all the ways that parents and offspring have conflicts and how sometimes parenting behavior kind of goes off the rails. Mm. And this is one of those, one of the many moments in class where I have to remind students not to anthropomorphize and put concepts of human morals and ethics onto the amoral behaviors of animals. So you're talking really to me right now, since particularly for the podcast, I love doing that. I love to just, (laughs) and I don't care. I'm still going to do that this whole episode. So, okay. All right. So if the offspring do not clean the rooms, what, what's a typical (laughs) response? Well, it's, yeah, it's a little bit different than that. And I guess I should also say that I kind of delved into some of the literature and there were some pretty grim studies that I read. So we'll try to keep it light uh, as we talk about kidnapping. And so I guess maybe we should start by defining kidnapping just as a behavior. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's the abduction of the offspring of one individual by some non-parental individual and the actual parent might not ever get back their offspring or maybe not for a long time Hmm. and so that you know that seems like uh kind of a weird behavior we can we hear we're aware of it in humans and game of thrones game of thrones yeah and yeah Greyjoy or whatever his name was theon Greyjoy. yeah and when we think of it in humans you know both in fiction and in real life there are often financial or power or political motivations related to it. But these are things that we don't normally think of for animals. Like animals are not interested in a currency and obtaining money by extorting the victim of the kidnapping or... And so trying to look at some of the cases of where this kind of thing happens and what might be the circumstances in which it happens in animals is kind of an interesting thing to do. So, So... Maybe we should introduce an adjacent concept called alloparenting. Parenting generally, the care of offspring by by their parents, is very common in lots of different kinds of animals. There are, of course, many animals where the female lays the eggs and that's the end of the story. You know, parents and offspring might not necessarily ever meet. But then there are many species where the parents actually provide some sort of prolonged investment in the offspring, whether it's provisioning them with a place to live or feeding them or protecting them or teaching them how to be that kind of animal or some combination of all of those things. And some of those animals are not social or communal living kinds of species. And, you know, that's kind of this other category, but where alloparenting often happens is in communal living species 
where females might produce a clutch of offspring sort of all at the same time. And so there's a whole bunch of young infants and juveniles at the same time with a whole bunch of mothers around, and they'll help parent each other's offspring. They might even nurse, if we're talking about mammals, they might nurse somebody who is Mm. not their own direct descendant, or they might offer protection or other kinds of care, grooming, comfort, those kinds of things. And so that generally is this concept of alloparenting, just parental behaviors that are directed at individuals that are not necessarily your direct offspring. And evolutionarily, that seems a little bit contradictory because there's this selfish gene idea. Richard Dawkins was, to my knowledge, was the first person to coin this term, the selfish gene. And it's the idea that an organism's genes build these bodies that do or do not get those genes into the next generation represented in their progeny. And genes that build bodies that are really good at doing that, those genes become more and more and more common through the generations at the expense Mm -hmm. of genes that build bodies that are less adept at doing that, right? And so to the extent that adults help or provide care or protection of young of the next generation, you might expect that they would direct that in a biased way towards their own offspring who carry their genes rather than towards unrelated individuals. Okay. And so this behavior that's very common, actually, in lots of different communal living kinds of organisms, from many different kinds of mammals to many different kinds of birds, it's a little bit counterintuitive, at at least at first blush. Right. So you're saying that this idea by Dawkins is you could sacrifice yourself as long as your genes live on, that it's really that animals and plants and everything just wants to spread their genes around. Mm -hmm. And and you described it very carefully to make sure that it's not that they want, but that if they're structured in such a way to do that, then they Mm -hmm. they tend to outlast and so forth. Right. But so something you just said about genes being represented in the next generation, I think kind of gives us some momentum to how this has been resolved and how it is that at least certain kinds of altruism might arise. And that is this idea of inclusive fitness. And so there's this famous biologist, last name of Hamilton, who initially kind of put the pieces together and is credited with this inclusive fitness idea. And that's the idea that not only does your fitness include direct descendants, not only does an organism's fitness include its direct descendants, who obviously carry genes from the parent, but it also includes individuals that are close relatives. Okay. Because they also share a lot of the same genes. And so that brings about this idea of kin selection where all else being equal, you might be expected to bias your helping behavior towards relatives versus towards non-relatives. And okay, so that that kind of maybe helps understand a little bit about why we might see individuals parenting or behaving altruistically towards other individuals. Maybe they're related. And in many cases, that's the case. And so like a kin selection kind of argument. Well, so I liked how you were first laying it out. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about this before with surprise ants and how it seems that ants will, they're more likely to raise their sisters. I don't remember the details of this, but they share more with 
their sister ants than they do with some others. And so then they will sometimes like do some dirty tricks to other ants while they're raising them in, in the, you know, larval stage or whatever. I'm throwing a lot yeah. of words out here that I'm not. No, no, we have talked about this before. And yeah, you're, you're very much on the right track. And kin selection theory has been really important in the study of social insects, because as you say, in the Hymenoptera, bees, ants, and wasps, they have this interesting reproductive system where the workers are actually more closely related to their sisters than they are to their own offspring. And in some cases, which we won't get into the weeds on that at the moment. And so kin selection has been a really important concept in social insect biology for a while. But what it doesn't explain, though, is what about all the cases where that sort of caring or altruistic behavior is directed at unrelated individuals? Mm -hmm. And so from a selfish gene point of view, there is no direct benefit to helping this individual. And yet we see it happen a lot, like especially in these these situations of alloparenting, where a lactating mother might allow a completely unrelated related nursing infant to nurse on her or might, if it's sharing food with young, it it might give up some of its own food to a completely unrelated infant. And so that's a difficult one to explain if your viewpoint doesn't really expand beyond just the selfish gene point of view. Right. So you're saying that, so there's a good mechanism for if you are selfish, Uh there's a mechanism that you will keep reproducing And so those selfish genes will just, you know, those traits will continue to propagate onward. Mm -hmm. But there's not necessarily the same obvious trait that, okay, well, I'm very nice and I will raise all these other children that are not my own. Mm -hmm. How is that a mechanism to propagate those particular genes of being nice? Yeah. And so the idea, especially for group living animals, is that these cooperative acts can lead to a longer term lifetime benefits compared to pursuing a strategy of just always acting in your own benefit in every single encounter. Because any individual encounter, you could behave in a way that always, always, always benefits yourself to the detriment of the other individual. Right. However, if you are going to be interacting with this other individual and numerous other individuals many times throughout your life, it might actually be a better strategy to cooperate with them. Because even if you're not doing as well in this single interaction as you could by behaving selfishly, if you behave cooperatively over the long term, you actually end out ahead. Okay. Because though you might have plenty of food or plenty of resources or plenty of whatever today, tomorrow, as well as next week, at some point, you might be in this position where you're on hard times. And if there are others in the group that you have established a cooperative relationship with through time, then they might be there and able to sort of float you. And, and then that will keep you or your offspring alive until mm. you're sort of able to get back to a better position again. Okay. And so in kind of an interesting way, if you expand out from any individual behavioral encounter and think about lifetime overall reproductive fitness, we actually start to see how altruism can actually fit into this model of a so-called selfish gene, even though it might actually require not being selfish in the the sort of long-term 
communal kind of living. This is going to be interesting because this reminds me of a late night debate in college. Uh Someone was trying to convince me that humans are better and we're totally different from the animals because of adoption. Like we can adopt a child that is not related to us at all and raise them and and that no other animals would ever do that. So we can't possibly be animals. But it sounds like you might be giving me a lot of examples today where that type of behavior might actually be the case. Yeah, well, you obviously need to email this person if you're still in touch with them and tell them that that, that's simply not true. They were misinformed about the idea that animals wouldn't, quote unquote, adopt other individuals or offer altruistic acts towards unrelated individuals. And so, you know, that's sort of the uh, nice Disney side of what we're talking about today. But where we're going to get to, though, is the the sort of darker side of misdirected acts of parenting towards offspring that are not your own. The Grimm's fairy tale. The Grimm's fairy tale, right. <laughs> so, so far, it's been the Disney. Now, we're going to get into the Grimm. All right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So where we see these kinds of behaviors tend to be in animals that have a few different kinds of attributes. And as a suite of attributes, it probably will make a certain amount of sense why this is the case, right? So like, for example, these are probably going to be species that produce few offspring, like maybe just one or two at a time, in contrast to species that might produce hundreds or even thousands of offspring at any given time, right? So if you think about a chimpanzee that produces a a single infant at a time versus a salmon, which might produce hundreds or thousands, Mm -hmm. and the level of parental care is just so totally different between those two kinds of situations. Okay. The second is that these are going to be animals where there's pretty intense parental investment in the offspring that the parents might have a relatively few number of reproductive bouts throughout their their lifetime. Okay. So they might only have a handful of seasons where they're reproductively capable. So what that means is that any individual offspring is really valuable. We might expect to see it in relatively small groups where individuals might be able to form memories and associations with each other on an individual basis. Like they know each other as individuals rather than just sort of a large nameless flock. Probably going to be animals that are pretty social and probably going to be a situation where there's like a season where the young are produced so that you get this short period of time in the year where there are lots of young aggregated all together at the same time. So like a real dense population of juveniles. Oh, I see. So each individual has just one Uh offspring, but we're talking about a season where all the individuals are having offspring at about the same time. So they're all kind of in the parenting mode right thing and so it it would be like some neighborhoods back in the (laughs) when we were growing up like everybody in the neighborhood would be parented by all the different parents some yeah yeah something like that i mean humans alloparenting in humans is incredibly common some of this strays into the psychology literature about parenting and child parent relationships and some of them talked about how better than 90 percent of all human children by the age of three have experienced alloparenting mm-hmm. and if your child goes to daycare there you go there's yeah. another individual that is behaving as parent yeah so 
maybe we can get into some examples of situations where it's actual either kidnapping or kind of parents gone wrong. Okay. Um, so what animals should we start with? Turns out that it's actually fairly common in a number of other primates. And uh, I read a few studies on rhesus macaques and uh, baboons. And the account from a troop of rhesus macaques was really interesting. What happened in this description was a higher ranking member of the troop came and took an infant away from a new mother. Okay. And the mother actually didn't try to go and retrieve her infant. And that's kind of an interesting thing to ponder. Like, why didn't the mother of this infant go and try to get her baby back? Mm -hmm. And the conclusion that the researchers came to is that in going and doing that, number one, it, it was kind of against the hierarchical structure mm -hmm. and that a violent encounter to try to get the infant back probably would have ended up with the infant being harmed okay. as well as the mother being harmed because it's a lower ranking individual. Mm -hmm. And so the mother was just kind of like, oh, well, okay, and just kind of hoped that uh, the opportunity arose for it to reunite with its infant. That often doesn't happen, though. And if the kidnapper is somebody who is not currently lactating or not currently in parenting mode, mm -hmm. then typically what happens is the infant will languish for a few days and then die of starvation or dehydration. Hmm. Yeah. Another similar study that I read was in baboons, exact same kind of thing. Actually, the lower ranking individual mother had her infant stolen by a higher ranking female. And again, in this paper, what they argued is that this might be a form of reproductive competition. And so I, I mentioned this idea of altruistic cooperation a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that there isn't still competition among individuals for who gets to do the producing of the offspring and the, the making of the babies. And so what they argued is that this higher ranking individual coming and taking away the infant of a lower ranking individual, even though this might not be how the baboon was thinking about it, it might have been facilitated by this drive to reduce the competitive advantage of somebody else who's not yourself and somebody specifically who's of a lower rank. Okay. I don't know that I, I get that necessarily. I, I get it as like they're higher rank and they did mm -hmm. it because they could. I, I would assume that the higher rank was unable to have a offspring that season or, or what have you. And was like, I'm in nursing mode. I want to have a, an offspring right now. And so, yeah. And it, it is kind of, it's a difficult one, right? Because of that. And you wonder if this higher ranking individual, if they had had their own offspring, if, their time would have been sort of occupied otherwise, but because they didn't and they there are many species where even if they're somewhat group living, they're very much anti adoption, like they are very hostile to the offspring of some other individual. I don't didn't mean to ever paint the picture that it's all just sort of like rainbows and mm -hmm. gumdrops or anything. It's still many cases where it's a pretty hostile environment. And so even in these group living primates that might, for the most part, be pretty cooperative and communally living, there are cases where that 
hierarchy comes into play and the higher ranking individuals will take advantage of their status to reduce the uh, standing and the reproductive success of lower ranking individuals. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably would not have been the case that the lower ranking individual would have done that to a higher ranking individual. That sure. seems pretty unlikely to happen. Another primate example, which was actually pretty hard to read, was from white-faced capuchins. Our listeners might know who capuchins are. They're these monkeys from Central and South America. They've got sort of like a white face and chest and sort of a, a dark brown to black shoulders and body, cute little tail that they use to hang from branches and stuff. The monkey on Friends. So <laughs> I have to admit, I've I am aware of the show called Friends. I live on planet Earth, but okay. I've never really watched it. I've heard before that there's a monkey on friends yeah and it was a white-faced capuchin so maybe you know people who who are more familiar with that show yeah maybe that will ring in their their yeah, minds so ross, what these things look like ross had this primate pet uh-huh i forget the pet's name he probably kidnapped it well, <laughs> <Sorry>. probably yeah <laughs> yeah so that's that's who we're talking about and okay. these animals like these other primates have all of the kinds of attributes where you might see this alloparenting going on. And this study actually occurred in uh, Costa Rica, in a region of Costa Rica where I've I've been to many, many times for some of my research. And so these are like troops that I, I know the forest they're talking about. I've seen the capuchins there many, many times. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I have no idea if this is the same troop or where specifically in this particular forest they're talking about. But this was a troop of capuchins that had been observed for many, many years. And in the paper, they talk about how this is the first time they'd ever seen this particular kind of behavior in this particular troop. And so so in, what is this behavior? It was a kidnapping again. So a higher ranking individual went up to a lower ranking individual and just yanked the infant away from the lower ranking individual and chucked him out of the tree. Oh, oh. yeah. And this ultimately led to the death of that infant. Hmm. And there was cannibalism happening. It was a pretty harrowing account to read. I won't recount the whole thing. Hmm. Was there a trial or anything or? No. And, you know, this higher ranking individuals, that's just their status. What the uh, researchers argue is that it might have been motivated by this idea of competition for the ability to breed within the group. And they also suggest that there might have been some group instability, like maybe something was going on with the social hierarchy at the time, maybe the alpha male and female, perhaps they were getting old, or maybe their positions were getting challenged. And so there was some instability within the group. And that kind of prompted this behavior, this really aggressive behavior of a higher ranking individual towards a subordinate to just completely dash its reproductive success, at least in that particular year. Hmm. This hadn't ever been observed in this particular troop before, but it's probably a thing that happens from time to time, just rare enough that we don't observe it because of that. But yeah, makes you wonder how common this is in other kinds of animals, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so sorry, those are primates. Yeah. So leaving the world of primates behind. Okay. Um, another really interesting example, and the one I talk about more in my behavior class actually, is in emperor penguins. And so, you know, okay. if you've seen March of the Penguins or watched them on, you know, like a David Attenborough nature documentary, these are these giant birds that live in Antarctica. They also and tap dance. 
Actually, those Adelie penguins, which, what are the ones in Happy Feet? I don't know. I thought they were all emperor. Well, I think there are a lot of somewhat ethnically problematic, stereotypical penguins in uh, Happy Feet. Oh. So. (laughs) All right. Well, let's cut out all that discussion of of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So emperor penguins are super interesting. They have this life cycle where the male and female show up at a time in the year when it's getting into the winter, the Southern Hemisphere winter. And because they're in Antarctica, this includes a period of time of continual darkness and extreme cold. And Yeah, I've seen March of the Penguins. And and it's the males, right, that carry the eggs between their feet. That's right. March along and then and they have to keep them warm. That's right. Yeah. So the males, as you say, they kind of hold them up on their feet and then they have this sort of fatty pouch on their tummy that sort of rolls down over the egg and kind of keeps it nice and warm in there. I've got that, too. <laughs> you keep an, keep an egg on your feet. <laughs> and so then then the females are completely gone. The females lay the egg and they're like, you know, later see ya. Yeah. Yeah. And they head out to sea where they feed for many, many weeks at a time, just continuously. And the thing about a lot of parenting behavior is that the hormones that drive those behaviors that cause your brain to put you in a cognitive state where you want to do all of these parental care behaviors, those hormones are produced as a result of your sensory system detecting the presence of young that need to be cared for, right? So whether it's visual stimuli, you know, the actual presence or odors associated with the young or sounds associated with the young or a combination of all of those things cause the nervous system to kick out hormones that ultimately lead to needing to do those behaviors. Okay. Well, these females are in a situation where they are in the complete absence of all of those cues for weeks and weeks and weeks. And for most organisms, if you remove them from a situation of cues that there's an offspring to be cared for, then the hormones start being not being produced. And that completely changes the cognitive state of the animal from a desire to parent to just, you know, normal day to day existence, non parenting kinds of things. Mm. But these female emperor penguins are out in the middle of the ocean for many, many weeks, completely without any cues from their offspring. And so what has happened through evolutionary time is that the hormones that are responsible for the desire to perform parenting behaviors remain high. They continue being produced at high levels, even in the absence of any cues from their offspring. And so that whole time while they're out there, they're still receiving these signals that in a sense kind of remind them that they have offspring back at home. Um, okay. Can and- we pause here? So so I only remember the the male penguins. So fill me in on what happens after that. The female lays the egg. The male quickly scoops it up onto his feet. The female heads out to sea okay. and the male stays there. And you've probably seen these videos of like the males kind of all clustering together in this large aggregation, mm-hmm. helping keep each other warm through the worst of the winter. And during that time, the females are out feeding and And then after about maybe six or seven or eight weeks, the females start coming back. 
And they've been gorging themselves on all of the food out at sea. And they're they're like huge relative to the males now. And they start coming back and they waddle up to where the males are. And by this time, the eggs have hatched, but the offspring are still very, very young and helpless until mom comes back and is able to start regurgitating food and producing more of that actual nutrition. Oh, okay. Okay. So mom comes back, then takes over the rearing of the chicks, Mm -hmm. and then dad can go away and eat again. Exactly. Yeah, the female gets back, and somehow the male that she's pair bonded with, they find each other, and... They're very interested in getting at the little tiny baby chick that the male has been guarding during this period of time. And so the female's like, okay, go on. I've got it from here for a while. The male goes out and he spends a few weeks eating and then he comes back and then they trade off again. And then the period of time that they're going back and forth sort of gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And they kind of run like a shuttle service where one of them typically is with the chick and then the other is out feeding and then they'll come out and they'll sort of tag team in that way. Hmm. And then the chick gets bigger and bigger and bigger and increasingly able to fend for itself. But it's in those critically early periods where the chick is really pretty helpless and can't really spend much time on the ice or it's going to freeze to death when kidnapping can actually happen. And so it certainly happens that an egg will not be viable or a male will accidentally drop an egg and it'll spend too long on the ice and it'll freeze and then that's it. Or a chick will get separated from its parent, from its father for some reason, and it'll freeze. And so there are many females who come back from this long period of time of having been at sea Mm -hmm. with these high hormone levels that are creating this really strong drive in their brains to do some parenting And they get to their mail and there's no chick there. Mm. So I suppose that's all interesting for purposes of understanding a little bit more about the natural world. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also kind of interesting just to think about how different kinds of behaviors and the kinds of environmental cues that are related to initiating certain behaviors and the hormones that are involved with the performance of certain behaviors, understanding something about the biological basis for different behaviors Mm -hmm. in non-human animals can often give us at least some indications of how we might seek to understand a biological basis for humans as well. That certainly is not to suggest that it is excusable, like kidnapping or something. And it obviously I'm not saying, oh, well, it should be a valid defense that, oh, my hormones were out of whack or something, Mm -hmm. right? Rather, what I'm saying is that if we can understand some of the neuroendocrinological causes or correlates of certain behaviors, it might help us identify people who might be needing help in a certain way, or it might point to how we might offer treatments for people who are have certain disorders resulting in abnormal levels or at least situationally inappropriate kinds of cognitive states brought about by hormones or other kinds of biological bases like that. Okay. So. All right. So you gave three examples of sort of stealing the next generation, stealing infants mm-hmm. from the their normal groups. You talked about several primates that they will steal an infant. Mm -hmm. Although, as you said, maybe in some of those cases, there could be some politics involved, which is kind of an interesting bridge, I guess. (laughs) Right, right. The social hierarchy gets involved. 
And we also talked about penguins. So it seems that the instinct to mother, to nurse, to rear, there's a lot of hormones involved in that. And that definitely plays a role in the animal kingdom. And you're saying potentially maybe by understanding that we can understand a little bit about the human population as well. Sure. And I would add that it's true for both male parents and female parents these hormones. There are lots of studies in species that have biparental care where the males, they also have all of those same kinds of hormones that cause the brain to need to do parenting behavior towards a a young and helpless infant. To throw a ball with them and yeah. yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Well, Well, thanks, Chad. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes, or if you have questions that you would like us to tackle, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.